Good morning, World of Life. Great to see you all, and uh, I'm finishing off today our Connecting the Dots series that you've seen on our big door outside, on the, on the slide-up door and everything like that. And in this series, we've been trying to help you to understand that our lives and the decisions we make in our lives are not like dots scattered randomly on a canvas. That it doesn't matter. You do whatever you want. It makes no difference. But actually, our choices and our decisions connect together to form this big story, this meta-narrative that God is writing, this redemptive story that is being written today, and it has an impact on the earth. Not just the small stories of, as we might consider them, of our day-to-day lives, our choices and decisions about who we marry, how we conduct ourselves in marriage, how we raise our children, what we do with our finances, where we live. I had a couple come to me after the meeting yesterday and said, their friends are moving to London, should they move to London? And I said, I don't know, what did God say? Because who cares what your friends do or what it feels like or where stuff's happening? The question is, what does God say? That's how our lives are connected. But, um, but God uses not just these individual things, but all of history, he ties together to tell the story. I don't know about you, but I do try and keep up to date with the news. I, I watch to see what's happening. Jesus did the same thing. He knew what was going on in his day. I don't know if they had like a Jerusalem daily or whatever it was that he read, but somehow there was news that got around. We have social media these days. And uh, I've been reading a, a fair few things over the last few weeks. I've been reading r- about the fact that the, the numbers are telling us that we could be heading into a worldwide recession, that it could impact the amount of money that people make, the jobs that people have. Um, if you're in debt, it would be a good time to pay your debt down and get yourself debt-free and those kind of things. I read yesterday the full transcript of Putin's speech that he made to the Russian people um, this weekend, and uh, it's serious. This is not. This is this is serious. What is going on around us? I'm I'm concerned about the increasing authoritarianism of governments around the world that are finding more and more tools to control what we're supposed to think and how we're supposed to behave and what's supposed to happen with our own lives, and then. Kind of on a smaller scale, I read a, um, I, I, I saw a podcast around Demi Lovato. You might go, who the heck is that? Um, I only know her because she used to be on Disney Channel and my kids used to watch it and so I kind of have followed her life since then. But she's mainstream. She's not on the periphery. She's on the mainstream. And she's just issued or put out a, a, a new album a little while ago whose name I can't even tell you because it's just um, not a great name for an album. And uh, I went in and saw some of the lyrics and some of the story behind it, and it, is, it was honestly my heart broke as I, I watched it. And it broke in part because this is the message of uh, somebody that other people aspire to be like. They, um, and then I, I saw she had been at a concert in Rio, in Rio, and she'd been on with this other girl whose name, I don't know, Lily or Illy or something like that, who is, um, my heart broke when I saw this. Genuinely, when I, when I saw the pictures of this girl, she looked like she had she'd just come out of Nazi concentration camp. And I, and I don't, I'm not being flippant when I say that. I mean, she looks like she has been violated and broken and bust up. It was like, and she is a rock star. And, um, and as I, I like my heart was like just grieved. And there was a moment where I thought to myself, I wonder if at times we wonder, is God winning? Do you know what I mean? Is his purpose being fulfilled because all around us we see things going on, whether it's from the, the wars that are going on between nations, these, these controls that are trying to be put in place, 
um, just the, the perversion that grips societies that we're a part of, is God actually winning this thing? And so I got to thinking about actually the flow of history. What is God doing in our history? Is, is this, and this is a message I want to tell you, that it, this is not just random events that are taking place, but God is at work in all of our history. The historian Sir Herbert Butterfield said, there are only two alternative views about life or about history. Either you trace everything back in the long run to sheer blind chance, or you trace everything to God. Now, the idea that there's a divine hand that is orchestrating and shaping all of history, that God in His sovereignty is working all things, even in the midst, friends, of our free will, and our mistakes, and our messes, and our rebellions, and our disobedience, individually and nationally, that God is working all things towards some end, is rejected by many, if not most people, in society. They tell us that everything that we can see and touch came about from some as yet unexplained beginning. They'll acknowledge that they've got a theory, but they can't show us where the beginning was. But they'll, they say, we'll find it out. We'll figure out what the beginning was one day, once science is able to go there. But from that time onwards, things have happened in random order and chance, and with enough time, we've ended up where we are today with intelligent human beings. Like somebody stirring a, a bowl of alphabet soup, that if you were to stir it long enough, and those letters didn't melt in the soup eventually, eventually, after some time, some word that means something might appear, or some sentence that means something might appear, and, that, and that's how we've got you, I think they're saying. And now that we've got you, We've got to somehow progress so that the same forces that got us to this random place aren't the forces that destroy us. And so we've got to, I don't know, whatever the, the utopian view of the future is, download our intelligence onto a computer so that we can live forever or something like that. I don't know. God help us if that's the view of the future. But the writer of Hebrews has an idea of something that's completely different. He says in this Massive, this verse has always meant so much to me. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made um, of things that are visible. And so it wasn't a big bang with all these elements that kind of took place and that everything came from what was visible. Actually, it came from the mind of God, from the will of God, and the voice of God that everything was created. And the writer of Hebrews says, like, I understand, you're not going to get this through your intellect. Like, there's, there's a wonder of God's design and creation. I, I look at a, I don't know, like a bumblebee or, a, or the, the eyeball or whatever it is in our creation. I think to myself, God, you are so amazing. But a, a scientist or secularist, a humanist, might look at that and say, well, you know, evolution is amazing. And I understand that there's a, an intellectual gap. There, there's, you can't prove it just out of our intellect. And so he says, actually, you can only grasp these things by faith. And he goes on, or a couple of verses before that, in Hebrews 11 verse 1, he says, Faith is the assurance of things hopeful and the conviction of things not seen. And so though we cannot see the way things were made, we know this, that they were made by God. Everything around us, everything we see, and everything we, we, uh, we can't see even, was made by God. And it's there that I want to start this morning. Because, well, now this afternoon, I think. Yes, this afternoon. Because that's where our story starts. In the understanding that in the beginning, God made everything. And He made everything with a purpose in mind. It wasn't just, I'm going to throw some stuff together and 
you know, like when you collect your leftovers and you kind of put it all in a bowl and say, let's see what comes out of this. God knew what he was doing. Paul makes this remarkable claim in the, the letter to the Ephesians church that even before the world was created, God had us in mind. He, he, he knew that we would be here, and before the world was made, he had in mind a people for himself. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, He, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so from eternity past, God has ordained a story that is, that is our history up until this point and is still becoming our history of this world. Um, at times, that, that, that story is chaotic and terrifying. <laughs> like you look around us sometimes and you, you read the newspaper or you, or you read this bit of history or that bit of history and you think, like, this is crazy. How's there an order? How's there a plan in any of this stuff? At other times, this world that God has created and the history of our history is beautiful and inspiring and full of hope and full of promise. And it's a story that's written in our ordinary day-to-day lives. When we go to school, or when we go to work, the decisions we make to love this person and marry this person, have children with this person, who we forgive and the, the money we make and what we do with our money. And it's also written in the vast sweeping history of nations. Is written in God's divine, sovereign will being fulfilled and in our individual free will to cooperate or not cooperate with God is how it happens. And what the Bible story is telling us, if you go to the Scriptures, is that this story, this, the, 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 the big things like countries at war with each other and the little things like a husband and a wife forgiving each other, all of those, those, those things work together directly and indirectly so that God's meta-narrative, his big story, the story that sits above every other story, will be written that God is setting apart for himself a people of his choosing. Not a worthy people, but a chosen people, people chosen by his grace. Now, I understand that when we go to the scriptures and we start off in the book of Genesis and that it speaks about how everything was created, that for some people, it is difficult for you to take that literally, that in seven days, God made the earth. I don't think our faith demands that we have to be in agreement exactly how God created. But I think there are certain things that we do need to come in agreement on. And there is one caution I want to say. The, the macroevolutionary theory, the idea that we have evolved from one species to another species, doesn't just come as a scientific theory. It's often loaded with a, with, um, with a comprehensive and anti-supernatural worldview. And so as you pursue it, if you, if you pursue it to its end, it ends up in the place where there cannot be a God who's in control of the universe. That is my warning to you. But the specifics of how the universe is created, one day we will be in heaven and we will see a video like our, a highlights reel, like our men's day, like this is exactly what happened and how it was put together. But what the Bible does demand and what our faith, I think, demands as well is that we agree that God made that he is the creator and has created rights over everything. Not only that, but that Adam and Eve were a literal man and woman, I believe. And I believe this because Jesus seems to affirm it. In Matthew 19, I think, when he's talking about marriage, he quotes from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. And in 1.27, it speaks about us being created male and female in the image of God. And in 2.24, that, we were, that man and woman will be joined together and become one flesh. And so Jesus seems to be affirming the Genesis account. He doesn't go, look, there was this myth about creation, 
And there were these people that sort of, no, no, he affirms, he quotes actually from the first two chapters of Genesis. Paul also speaks about Adam. In uh, Romans and in 1 Corinthians, he uses, he speaks about Adam and explains the necessity and the effectiveness of the redeeming work of Christ. And it's necessary, he says, because Adam sinned. He doesn't in any way speak of Adam's sin as if it were some metaphor for something else. The difficulty we have when we think about our world is how do we understand um, the, the reality of our sin and of God's holiness? And the problem is because we are so close to ourselves, we're, we're, our, our proximity to each other is so close, and our distance from God is so great that we cannot fathom the depths of our sin nor the heights of God's holiness. And so the Old Testament prophets would use analogies like um, idol worshippers sacrificing their children in the fire or a wife being unfaithful and prostituting herself behind her faithful husband. Those, those are pictures of what, of what sinfulness was like. But even our worst examples of human wickedness, and something might jump into your mind, I think of the Holocaust, for example, are utterly inadequate to show us truly how grotesque our sin is. Not their sin, not somebody else's sin, but our sin as humanity. Humanity. In the same way, Isaiah tries to help us to see the holiness of God. He sees God in Isaiah 6 on his throne, and he falls to the ground mortified, like, like he's broken. He, he wants to die because he's just seen the holiness of God. As A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and he's speaking of, he says, neither the writer, speaking of himself, nor the reader of these words, speaking of us reading his book, neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart quite unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, He does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. And the reason why I say this is because our sin, the sin of Adam, has affected every generation. That disfiguring has warped the soul of every single person that has ever been born. And not only in our in our inherited state, but also in our action, we have joined in the rebellion that was started by Satan as he sought to overthrow the rule and the reign of this holy God. And this diabolical alliance between a fallen humanity and a rebellious Satan has produced every form of hatred and blasphemy and hurt and brokenness on the earth today. You know, when I, when I looked at that girl, whatever her name was, that rock star that, that sang with Emmy Lovato, I thought to myself, she, she looks so completely, friends, and utterly broken. It, it looks like, like she's been like, like, like violated every single night, like cast aside. And, like, um, and I think to myself, that's not, that's not like some far-end weird part of the spectrum. That is humanity apart from Jesus Christ. Left to ourselves for long enough, we all are that young girl. And in fact, without Jesus Christ in our inner being, we are. That is, our, that is what we actually look like on the inside, that brokenness 
is our brokenness. But God, but God has chosen before the foundation of the world a people that would be holy and blameless and adopted as his sons and daughters in Christ. And as dark as that day was when Adam sinned against God, it was also the day that the father promised that he would send his son to defeat that rebel leader, to crush the head of Satan, is the way he spoke about it, or the head of the serpent. And that promise, in that promise is the hope that the yoke of slavery would be thrown off of us and that God would redeem us for himself for eternity. You know, on that day, God took an animal and slaughtered it and took the skins of that animal to make garments for Adam and Eve. It was a picture of the atonement, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, no covering up of sins. And it pointed towards Christ who would come, whose blood would be shed, that our sins not, would not be covered up, would be, would be washed. And so all of history, from the beginning of mankind until now, is the backdrop to that story. I talk about it being this, this scarlet thread that runs through from the beginning of time until one day when Christ returns again. There is this redemptive story that runs through it all. And so in the next 10 minutes, I want to run through 4,000 years of history to show you how everything is leading up to, was leading up to the coming of Christ and how everything that we face today. See, the understanding is if that was true until the first coming of Christ, then God is in control of everything that is leading to the second coming of Christ. And so when Adam and Eve came out of that garden, the wickedness of humanity grew and grew and grew until it became so profound and universal that God's judgment could not be restrained anymore. And so the great flood came. And um, you can just follow me on the slides. Okay, you just have to guess where I am as I'm moving forward. And so, um, and so God sent a flood both as a warning and a promise. A warning, friends, that God's holiness and our sinfulness cannot coexist like that. And without God's redeeming purpose in the midst of us, we will become more and more depraved, like the example of that girl I've used, Humanity will become more broken, more irredeemable. And so God promised that his redemptive purpose was going to be fulfilled through mankind. Noah and his family then restarted, as it were, the human race. From Noah's son, Shem, there were nine generations until God went and picked out a man by the name of Abram. And he said to him, Abram, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he changed his name from Abram to Abraham, which means the father of many, with a promise that through Abraham, God would bless the entire world. To Abraham was born, late in his life, a son by the name of Isaac. And he was the son of the promise because Abraham couldn't naturally have children. And Sarah was barren. It was a miracle that, that Isaac was born. And Abraham loved his son, the son of the promise. And then God does something bizarre and says to Abraham, I want you to offer him upon an altar. And Abraham, I'm sure, through great anguish, uh, walked in obedience with God and had his grown-up son lie down upon the altar, had the dagger in his hand, and as he was about to put it into his body, God stays his hand. He says, I want to postpone the sacrifice. This is not the one I want. There's another son of yours that I'm going to ask for into the future. And so God was pointing us towards what was still to come. To Isaac was born Jacob, the second of the twins. He came out second. He shouldn't have had the, the, the birthrights of the firstborn, but he did. He received it because God was reminding us that we are there by his choice, not by our worth and our worthiness. There we go, buddy. You, there we go. Thanks, Saj. And so Jacob, um, Jacob, despite his many flaws, and he was, a, he was a seriously flawed dude like many of us are, reaffirmed the covenant that his grandfather Abraham had made with God. He had, um, he had 12 sons, 
in his lifetime who would become the 12 tribes um, of Jacob. But before Jacob came back to the promised land, he, was, um, he, he spent the night wrestling with God. And in that time, God changed his name to Israel, which means wrestle with God. And so these sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph, as God had prophesied, um, one of um, Jacob's favorite sons, rose to a position of great prominence in Egypt at a key time in world history. And so Jacob and his family, his sons and all of their family, moved to Egypt as honored guests and lived there for 430 years. In time, they would move from being honored guests, however, to becoming slaves in Egypt, as God had again predicted. But God was setting up Israel for an incredible rescue that would mark them out for all generations. This story would be told for generation after generation and was pointing to a spiritual deliverance that would later take place through, the, through, the, through Jesus Christ to become the, the Moses of our souls. And Moses was the one that was chosen by God to lead them out. And God again in his sovereignty hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that when Moses went to him and said, let my people go that they may worship me, Pharaoh said no. And it set up this clash between the kingdom of darkness represented by Pharaoh and the kingdom of light represented by Moses. Who held the power? Who held the political power, the monetary power, everything else? It was Pharaoh. And yet God was showing us that these two kingdoms were clashing not at the earthly level but at the spiritual level that he would work out his plans. And so one judgment followed another until it came to the final judgment that God promised that the firstborn of every household, both human and beast, would die as the spirit of death passed over the nation. And then God did something that was going to point to the future again. He said, I want you to take every one of you, every family, a lamb, just slaughter it. Take the blood of the lamb and mark the doorposts. And I, I see there's a picture of the cross there like this. As they marked the doorposts of the house. So when the spirit of death came, it would pass over that home, and there would be, and you would be saved, and you'd be redeemed by the blood. And so God was putting into the psyche of God's people this idea that there is atonement through the through the substitutionary sacrifice of blood, pointing towards Jesus. And then, the fact, but despite God's miraculous, powerful de deliverance of Israel, you know, they were taken out of Egypt, carrying their plunder across the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh's army were were completely destroyed. The endemic nature, the sinful nature manifested in a kind of amnesia. We keep forgetting what God has done and who He is. We keep forgetting. And so we, we start to put our trust and our dependence upon someone or something else. And so God said none of those Israelites that had come out of Egypt, that generation, not one of them would come into the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. And finally, when they had all died, Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land and he led them for 40 years and they were supposed to occupy this land. When Joshua died, they still hadn't occupied all of it. They still had other um, people groups living amongst them. And that same amnesia gripped them as well. And they began to worship the gods of the nations they were supposed to drive out, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And so we get to the roller coaster generation, this generation that would go from sinning and, um, and rebelling against God and worshiping other gods to coming under, under oppression and being plundered to crying out against God, oh God, please rescue us, we love you so much, we need your help. God raising up judges, and those judges bring them um, in deliverance and causing prosperity again. They forget about God, they sin, and the cycle went over and over and over again. Whether it was Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jeh, Jephnath, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, Samson, every single one of these judges went through this roller coaster ride of Israel. It was, 
of Persia that would one day come in place to send Israel back into the nation. And so he spoke about Cyrus being a shepherd of his who would serve his people. For 70 years, Israel was in exile. Most of that time, um, the story tells us what was happening in Babylon with Daniel and the three Hebrew boys. But one day, um, as the Babylonian king Belshazzar was having a party and full of boastfulness and pride, he calls for those the goblets of gold and silver that had been taken from the temple by his, by his forefather Nebuchadnezzar to be used so they could mock the God of the Israelites. And uh, as they're drinking from those goblets, a hand begins to write upon the wall. And so they call Daniel in, who had been exiled in 605 B.C. and had become one of the wise men of Babylon. Come tell us what's going on here. And Daniel tells him, he says, I've got bad news for your king this very night. And the scripture goes on to record that that very night, Cyrus's army came into Babylon. Belshazzar was killed, and the kingdom of Babylon fell, and the kingdom of the, um, the Medes and the Persians rose up. One of the first things that Cyrus did was to send, um, allow the um, exiles to go back for, with a specific instruction to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls. And so in 538 B.C., Zerubbabel led 50,000, almost 50,000 exiles back to Jerusalem. Two years later, they laid the foundation for the temple. After 20 years of opposition and distraction, they finally rebuilt the temple in 516 B.C. It would be some years after that in 445 B.C. that Nehemiah, who was still in exile and uh, serving the king Ozerxes at the time, would be sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. What had been delayed for 70 years would be accomplished in 52 days. Israel was now back, although significantly smaller and perhaps insignificantly, uh, politically insignificant, was back. The temple, which was such a key part of God's redemptive story, was back in place again. And profound, profoundly importantly, the, the genealogical records that would prove that Jesus, the Messiah, his lineage had come from David, were restored into the temple so that they could see he could fulfill those, um, those prophecies. And so while Israel remained subjugated by these powers around them, God began to use these geopolitical movements to prepare the way for his son to come. In 336 BC, Alexander the Great became the, the emperor of, the, of, of Greece and spread that Greek language all over the known world. So that when Christ came, there was this one common language that would be used so the gospel message could go into all the nations. After that, the Roman Empire came in, and their road system and their law and order covered that whole territory as well. Many of these nations that I've described were dreamed about ahead of time by Nebuchadnezzar. This pagan king gets a dream, and he can't tell what it means. And so Daniel, again, is called forward to interpret it. And Daniel says to the king, this is what you dreamed. He says, you saw a king, uh, a great image. This image is mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And the interpretation of that on the next slide is that the head represented the kingdom of Babylon, the chest and the arms, the Medes and the Persians, the belly and the thighs, Greece, the legs of iron, Rome, and the feet of iron and clay, the divided nations, some say of Europe, but of the world that have been from that time until the present day. But God was using these nations to accomplish his purposes. And so in Galatians chapter 4, go to the next slide please, Paul is able to say that in the fullness of time, while Rome was 
holding sway over Jerusalem, that was the fullness of time Christ came. It was the perfect time for Christ to come. And we might look at history and go, but Lord, why do you take so long? Why so many nations? Why so many ups and downs? But Paul says it was the perfect time. And he says the perfect time had come. When the perfect time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. All of history had worked towards the coming of Christ. There's this description in, in Matthew 1 verse 17 that says, From the time of Abraham to the time of David is 14 generations. From David to the exile in Babylon is 14 generations. From the exile in Babylon to Christ is 14 generations. There's a symmetry to history as we see God working. You can see it looking back. You can't see it looking forward. You can't see it when, you look, when you're living in it right now. And we are living in history. Um, and so we see it coming together all in Christ. Christ was crucified outside the walls of the city where the nations gathered together to celebrate Passover. That, that cataclysmic moment where God liberated Israel from Egypt was celebrated every year by the slaughter of lambs. And uh, they, as they went through this, they remembered the fact that it was the blood of the lamb on the seat, on the doorpost that caused the spirit of death to pass over. When, when John, the last prophet, saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And so Jesus became the final lamb for, to, for the final Passover. The temple originally built by Solomon and then rebuilt by Zerubbabel in 516 B.C. was built on Mount Moriah, which today is known as the Temple Mount, which was the same mountain where Abraham offered Isaac to God. And God said, not him, another son would be taken. Now at this crossroads of all time and history, what God had promised in the garden was about to be fulfilled. And although it wasn't apparent in the manner of Christ's humiliation and excruciating death, this was the triumph. This was the crushing of the serpent's head. And that's why Paul can say in Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And so Christ was crucified, was raised from the dead, was um, ascended to be with the Father and said to the disciples, wait. And there were just 120 of them before God poured out his Holy Spirit. Let's go back to the slide of the Roman Empire. So, so there we go. That was the, the map of the Roman Empire. That's where the, the Roman rule covered. Now, why don't you go to the next slide, the one about Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, from all over the, ro the known world, people gathered together. That's what Acts records as the people that were represented on the day of Pentecost. The day that Peter stood up to preach the, first, the gospel for the first time under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, God had strategically gathered people from all the known nations to come into that particular place. And so from a small band of 120 believers in a, in a subjugated city, the message of salvation and the faith witness of the believers spread to the whole world, turning it in the, in the testimony of one opponent to the gospel, turning the world upside down. See, Jesus' coming was the great dividing line in history. All of time is separated, despite the way that they're trying to change it today, into B.C. and A.D., before Christ and in the year of our Lord. And it's incredible how the Holy Spirit had foretold the events that would take place that would lead up to the coming of Christ. God has been in control of this thing the whole time. But what about this and what about that? We have our free will. I think one of the things that we've got to decide is we see that the, the vessel of God's purposes is sailing from one point to another. 
The question is just, are we going to be on that vessel? It's incredible to think as well that God would come to a pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know what you would compare him to. Maybe in some ways he might be like a Hitler, and in some ways like a Putin, in some ways like a whatever, like a Bill Clinton. I don't know where your politics lies. I don't care. Whatever it is, he's a, he, was a, um, uh, he was a pagan leader, and God gives him this dream of what's to come. And Daniel interprets it. One of the parts that I, I didn't share with you was that there was these, the head and all that, the different parts of the statue. But then he said there was also a stone that was carved out by no human hands that, that was thrown towards the statue and struck the feet of the statue like this. And in Daniel 2, 44 to 45, Daniel gives the interpretation of this when he says this. He says that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to other peoples. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, Babylon, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and every kingdom since. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Jesus is that stone. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is 